listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for spending some time. It is the International Plowing Match Day. That's where all Ontario political leaders go and try and plow a straight furrow and concentrate on rural things and rural issues. Later on today, Premier Doug Ford will be speaking to the media, holding his first media availability since the federal election campaign began. We will have that for you on the radio station as it happens. Expected to happen about 1.15 today. Stay tuned for that. But with such focus on rural and agricultural matters, I had to begin the program by reading to you what I believe may be the greatest headline I have ever seen in my life. This just out in the last hour, this from Newsweek, newsweek.com. This is the headline. Massive semen explosion after blaze hits bull artificial insemination facility, firefighters forced to dodge projectiles. I'm just going to let that sink in. Here are the details. A huge fire at a cattle breeding facility in Australia has caused thousands of dollars in damage after at least 100 cylinders containing bull semen were destroyed. The liquid inside the cylinders was rapidly expanding and essentially the lids of the chirogenic cylinders were popping off and projectiles were being thrown from the building. It's raining men. What is going on in Peel region? Did you see this tweet from Patrick Brown, the mayor of Peel? Quote, I am sick and tired of the 416 gang activity spilling over into Peel region. We still have not received any of the gun and gang funding that Toronto and Ottawa receive. This is yet another reminder that gang activity doesn't respect postal codes. The province needs to look at the bigger picture. That from Patrick Brown after a series of violent events in Peel region over the last couple of days. Those will be questions, perhaps, for the Premier today, and once again, the Premier speaking in about an hour's time. Stay with us here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto for that. But let us begin with a roundup of what is going on in the federal election campaign, and we begin with the Conservatives. Andrew Scheer has been pitching woo to soccer moms and dads. I don't know if you saw his press conference yesterday. Basically him alone standing in front of a giant field. That's not a good look, Andrew. Everybody else surrounded by people. Nevertheless, there he was promising the return of the canceled tax credits for sports and arts for kids. Now, today, Scheer promising, quote, Under the conservative plan, the government's contribution to an RESP will rise from 20% to 30% for every dollar invested up to $2,500 a year. The change will boost the maximum annual grant from $500 to $750. If you got kids, you probably are putting money into an RSP. If you can, you might not be able to, but obviously all the everybody says you got to do it. So here is another plank of a platform aimed squarely at the middle class. But that's the promise. How much is all of this going to cost all of these goodies, Mr. Shear? 
We have made many exciting announcements that are all based at putting more money in the pockets of Canadians so that they can get ahead. Uh, we understand that these are exciting announcements that a lot of people realize will benefit them in their daily lives, and we will absolutely show Canadians how we are going to get both get back to balanced budgets over a five-year period and ensure that these tax cuts do put money back in the pockets of Canadians. It will happen with plenty of time for Canadians to make their decisions as to who to vote for on October 21st. That is Andrew Scheer talking about the fact that so far the Conservative platform is not costed. So you have all of these goodies being promised, but yet no money on it, no dollar figure on how that all works us back to balance. Stay tuned for that. Meanwhile, the NDP today promising to build a half a million new affordable homes across the country within 10 years if elected. The leader in Ottawa did not provide details on how he would actually achieve that goal. Jagmeet Singh saying only he'll have more announcements to come. Singh saying the economy is doing well, but not for everyone. He criticized the Liberals, obviously, but $5 billion in the first year of an NDP government for housing. Where is that money going to come from? Reporters pressed him for an answer, and here is what they got in response from Jagmeet Singh. Instead of buying a pipeline for $4.5 billion, again, not something that Mr. Trudeau costed out, didn't tell people that how he's going to pay for it, went out and did it. When something's a priority, Mr. Trudeau seems to go out and do it, uh, but it hasn't been a priority to make people's lives better. We believe our priority should be investing in, in people, investing in housing, and, and that's what we're going to do. Where am I going to get the money? I'm going to get the money from changing my priorities from what the other guys have priorities for. If you follow that answer. All right, show me the money green version now. Elizabeth May released her ambitious platform on Monday. Here's John Ibbotson writing in the Globe and Mail. Quote, the parliamentary budget office will release its analysis of the platform shortly, the Greens say. But to these tired eyes, the tax measures proposed would not provide the revenue needed to implement the Green program while also keeping budgets balanced. Here is Elizabeth May on why she did not release yesterday a costed platform. We did not want to release a platform without a budget, but we are still waiting on a couple of planks that the Parliamentary Budget Office is working on. So the budget will be coming and released to back all of this up within a week. But we didn't want to have a short election campaign. Our candidates need the platform. Canadians need the platform. So the platform is more important than the money that goes with it. Interesting that all of the opposition parties doing that, and the government as well. We'll talk about the Liberals in just a moment. But the PBO, the Parliamentary Budget Office, stay tuned to hear a lot more from them because basically the Liberals have made rules now that the PBO has to analyze all of these promises, and that itself is a political situation which we will keep our eyes on. Now, the Liberals are promising a suite of family-friendly benefits, including a boost to the Canada Child Benefit and a 15-week leave program for adoptive parents. Liberal leader Justin Trudeau seeking to one-up the Conservatives this morning by promising new parents won't pay any taxes at all on maternity and parental leave benefits. Now, the Conservatives had announced last week that if they win government, they'd address the fact that those benefits are taxed by giving new parents a tax credit. See, we're going to tax you, but then we're going to credit back to you. But the Liberals now have one-upped them by saying, well, we'll just take the taxes off altogether. 
Now, according to Liberal Party calculations, the proposed measures would cost about $800 million in 2020-21. That rises to $1.2 billion by 23-24, costing analysts, or the analysis, pardon me, you know where that's supposed to come from, the aforementioned PBO, the Parliamentary Budget Office, has not yet released its analysis of these promises. Which brings me to one last thing before I leave the Trudeau liberals behind, and that is something that's kind of gone viral. Have you seen the pictures of Justin Trudeau snuggling up to Bianca Andreescu? Do you think they are inappropriate? Keep in mind, there is a large swath of this country where people are not so thrilled with the performance of Justin Trudeau, and that sort of thing feeds into it. Well, the new polling says, though, that that's not really what's happening if you take the pulse of the voters. The CEO of Ipsos Global Public Affairs, Daryl Bricker, was on this radio station a little earlier explaining these latest polling numbers. They're pretty much tied, the liberals and the conservatives, but they differ across the country. Well, it's 35-35, and depending on whether you're in Western Canada or you're in Eastern Canada, it's a bit of a different picture. So if you're in Western Canada, uh, the Conservatives have a pretty good lead. Uh, and uh, over the Liberal Party, even in British Columbia, where the Liberals did reasonably well in the last election. But the minute that you hit the Ontario border, things change. And in Ontario, we have the Liberals ahead with an eight-point lead. But I should say, only by three points in the 905. So that's how close it is. That rich belt of seats around the city of Toronto that every party needs to win in order to win the election campaign, they only have a three-point lead there. You get to Quebec, the Liberals are looking really good, and we have a tie in Atlantic Canada. Eight-point lead in Ontario. Does that reflect what you feel and see and hear? A three-point lead, which is essentially a statistical tie in the very important 905 region. How important? Here's Daryl Bricker again. In, in the 905, the Liberals have a three-point lead. Depending on the week, it swaps back. The Conservatives could have a three-point lead. Whoever is ahead by, I'd say, at least five points in the 905 has the best chance of winning the election, and neither one of them are, can, can lay claim to that right now. That is Daryl Bricker from Ipsos talking about the most recent polling, which shows a dead heat between the Liberals and Conservatives, 35% support each as the campaign really starts to get rolling. Welcome back to the program. As we're keeping our eye on the federal election campaign, you may be asking yourself, where is Maxime Bernier, the uh, leader of the uh, party, the People's Party, announced uh, yesterday that he will be part of the federal election debates, but the leader was today in base Gagetown in informal visit to that base. When asked about the environment, he said, quote-unquote, there is no climate emergency. That's from Maxime Bernier. Why is everyone so terrified of Faith Goldie? The Liberal Party of Canada on Monday issued a statement denying that leader Justin Trudeau had ever had drinks with Faith Goldie the former journalist and far-right activist whose politically toxic image has dominated a tit-for-tat historical scandal-mongering in the election's early days. This is sort of what uh, Alfred Hitchcock used to refer to as the MacGuffin, the thing that leads nowhere, the bit in the movie where you think, well, that's interesting, and then it just turns out to be a dead end. 
And I think that's kind of what this is. But right now, Faith Goldie has been part of the election campaign. In the last few years, Goldie has built a large online following with her image as a militant traditional Catholic and her promotion of anti-Muslim conspiracy theories, including the claim that immigration is causing, quote-unquote, white genocide. Here she is from the last mayoral uh, campaign trying to bust in on a mayor's debate. I'm sorry we can't have any disruption. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Can we take care of this, please? Thank you. Now, beyond disruption, Ms. Goldie has very little else to offer. But it is interesting that even having a photo with her, or even the suggestion that you might have had drinks with her, is enough to cause some news on the campaign trail. Now, if Faith Goldie isn't the most dangerous person, perhaps simply Faith is, especially for Andrew Scheer. Propelled to the conservative leadership by many social conservatives, Scheer has had to repeatedly reassure Canadians on thorny issues like abortion. Scheer has said that any government he leads will not reopen issues of conscience that have already been settled. Here recently is Scheer answering questions about abortion. Uh, We have always made it very clear that uh, we will not support reopening the issue. The Conservative government will not reopen this issue. And as Prime Minister, I will oppose and will vote against any measure that does attempt to do that. We are going to be focused on things that unite Canadians, unite our own uh, team. Now, as Scheer pitches himself to Canadians as a middle-of-the-road, middle-class Canadian, how should he confront those trying to portray him as an ultra-conservative Catholic harboring a secret agenda to ban abortion and curb LGBTQ rights? My next guest is a former Ontario cabinet minister who now lectures at Wilfrid Laurier University, and he writes today, quote, as a Roman Catholic ex-politician who studies faith and politics at a Canadian university, I thought I would try my hand at drafting some ideas for Mr. Shear. I'm pleased to welcome to the program John Malloy. Hi, John. Hi, Alan. How are you? I'm excellent, thanks. What do you think that Mr. Shear should do in terms of confronting this sort of issue? Well, what I wrote in the piece is that he shouldn't be defensive about it. I think he should acknowledge the fact that he's a devout Catholic, as is Mr. Trudeau. Uh, uh, Elizabeth May and Jagmeet Singh are both people of faith as well, and there's lots of people of faith here in Canada. So identify with them, talk about uh, all that faith brings to a public discussion in terms of uh, concern for the other, concern for the community, that sort of thing. When it comes to these hot-button issues, and again, I'm basing this on what Mr. Shearer has said publicly, Uh, I suspect that he is personally pro-life. He can say that, and then he can say as a Catholic, he also recognizes uh, that people follow their conscience, that people have their own set of beliefs, and he would respect that as prime minister. And then uh, when it comes to uh, LGBTQ issues, again, I think he can talk about uh, the church's views on sexuality. You know, there's a personal side of that, uh, which is his business. But as a politician, he certainly ascribes to the church's teaching, which is you never discriminate based on on sexual orientation. And then he should talk about other issues. I, I mean, I think he should come out. Uh, swinging and talk about the importance of faith, explain how it uh, uh, manifests itself in his views, and then he should move on. Instead, he's sort of playing peekaboo around it. When it comes to issues of faith, 
And when they differ from what your stated views are or your intentions are as a government, that becomes difficult, does it not, to be able to say, I personally hold this view, and yet my government will do something different. Well, I think you, you have to realize that there's, there's two issues often uh, at play here. One is how you would comport yourself personally, and the second, how you would translate that into public policy. Um, the Church's views on sexuality, as you pointed out, I'm a Catholic, um, they can't be put in a, in a, in a, in a quick 10-second uh, clip. But, you know, they, they talk about sex, for example, uh, only taking place within marriage. So you might personally be opposed to premarital sex, but as a matter of public policy, you don't think that we need to pass a law banning premarital sex or, you know, calling out people who are living together and not married. So I, I, I don't think it's hypocritical to say, hey, there's a difference on how I want to follow it personally and how I think it should apply to public policy. Again, I'm, and I, I want to caution everyone, I'm, I'm using Andrew Scheer's words. Andrew Scheer has said that he's opposed to abortion. Or, excuse me, Andrew Scheer has said that as Prime Minister, he would not open the issue. So I'm, I'm, I took that. And, and made some suggestions of how he might express that. Perhaps, he, you know, other Catholics do want to open up the issue. I respect that. But I'm just saying Andrew Scheer has been very clear that he doesn't want to open up the issue. And I think there's a way he could present it by saying, personally, I'm opposed to abortion. But as prime minister, I, I, I won't. I, 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 he is so defensive, and the Conservative Party has been dof so defensive on this. And quite frankly, I think the media and the critics have taken advantage of that. If I was him, I would, I would come out very calmly, but uh, with some enthusiasm, and talk about the importance of his faith. John Malloy is an assistant professor of public ethics, ethics at Wilfrid Laurier University, a former Ontario cabinet minister, and you can read his piece nationalnewswatch.com. John, thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you, Alan. Well, how did Sarah from the Conservative Party get your number? This is courtesy of journalist Justin Ling writing for Vice Canada. Parties in Canada all start from roughly the same point in terms of information about voters. Elections Canada sends out a giant file with names and addresses of every voter, and parties can then go about getting their landlines from phone companies. That database is mostly populated through tax returns, immigration information, provincial driver's licenses, and some self-reporting. So then the party, or more specifically the private company that the party hires to do this, can get the first six numbers because that part of your phone number is administered by the very modern-sounding Canadian numbering administrator. But then... Parties need to randomly guess the next four digits, which means randomly texting a lot of confused people. But that gives you an idea of how it is that Sarah from the Conservative Party got your number. Welcome back to the program. A quick look at some of the news stories that are sort of popping up around the world, ones that are sort of interesting. And this one, I, I did you hear about the theft of the golden toilet, the golden crapper that was thieved? Well, police have now arrested a second suspect in an unusual case involving the theft of a golden toilet from Winston Churchill's birthplace. Thames Valley Police say Tuesday that a 36-year-old man has been arrested on suspicion of conspiracy to burgle. 
to turd burgle. The two suspects have not been charged or identified. The police investigation over the Saturday morning theft at Blenheim Palace is ongoing. The toilet is a work of art valued at a million, 1.25 million Canadian, actually. Other news, Jeopardy! host Alex Trebek is giving the up, giving an update on his health as he battles pancreatic cancer. ABC's TJ Holmes sitting down with the beloved Canadian-born TV icon. It was just last month that Trebek announced the good news. Treatment was working, and he'd finished his chemotherapy. But then things took a turn. You said you having to go through another round of chemo. Yeah. Was that the plan always, or this no. was... No. Uh, I was doing so well, so we were all very optimistic. And they said, good, we're going to stop chemo. We'll start you on immunotherapy. I lost about 12 pounds in a week, and my numbers went sky high. He found out about this diagnosis earlier in the year, made the announcement in March. He has not missed work, hadn't missed a beat. That is an update on the health of Alex Trebek. He has another doctor's appointment this week, says he'll give an update on his condition in the near future. Longtime ABC News political reporter Koki Roberts has died at the age of 75. Good Morning America co-anchor Robin Roberts has a look back on her career. She's been a fixture behind the news desk for over 40 years. We're following two major stories tonight. Reporting on the stories that shape generations. After all, President Clinton's problems with Jennifer Flowers were not just her word, it was tape recordings. Journalism was her calling, but politics, well, that was Cokie's passion. As a reporter and author, she trailblazed her way through an industry where women were barely seen. That is a look back on the life of Cokie Roberts, who has passed away at the age of 75. Meantime, scientists think that they are actually a step closer now to a possible cure for the common cold. Ah, the common cold. The best doctors have been able to offer for generations as far as making you feel better is to drink fluids and get plenty of rest. (coughs) But what if you see San Francisco researchers are onto something with their idea of disabling a single specific protein inside human cells? so that cold viruses can't spread to another part of the body. Stanford professor Jan Caret says it's sort of like the viruses are lousy house guests and we're the Airbnb owner trying to get them to leave. Uh, what we do is we make the host inhospitable for uh, these viruses, so it's much more difficult for the virus to mutate around. Kind of like changing the locks so the viruses have nowhere to go. Sherry Preston, ABC News. But it's not just the germs you have to worry about from St. Paul, Minnesota. School officials have issued a letter reminding parents and students to keep their iPad cases clean after bedbugs were discovered in five of the devices. Apparently, the letter was sent to all middle and high school families, gave instructions on cleaning the devices. These iPads were distributed to students at the start of the school year. Bedbugs in the iPad case. South of the border, the United Auto Workers strike at General Motors in the United States is in its second day with nearly 50,000 workers on picket lines instead of assembly lines. Management and union are talking, but industry analysts say they're also digging in for a long and costly fight. President Trump hasn't formally taken sides except to say that. My relationship has been very powerful with the auto workers, uh, not necessarily the top person or two, but the people that work. The president in a tweet urges the two sides to, quote, get together and make a deal, unquote. Job security, health care and salaries are on the table. Jim Ryan, ABC News. And still with U.S. President Donald Trump, the president taking a more careful tone after America blamed Iran for Saturday's attack on the world's largest oil refinery in Saudi Arabia. 
After President Trump responded the U.S. was locked and loaded following the attack that crippled a massive Saudi oil facility, the president's now choosing more cautious wording when asked about his message for Iran. I'll have a stronger message or maybe no message at all uh, when we get the final results of what we're looking at. But right now it's too soon to say. The president says it does look like Iran was responsible for the attack, but the evidence wasn't yet definitive. A senior U.S. official tells ABC News both a drone and a cruise missile used in the strike have been found mostly intact, which could provide stronger confirmation of who's responsible. Trevor Alt, ABC News, Washington. Meanwhile, the arrest of a senior RCMP official was the fruit of a 2018 international police operation that targeted the encrypted communication service Phantom Secure. That's according to sources talking to Global News. Now, Phantom Secure was dismantled last year by authorities in the U.S., Canada, Australia, Hong Kong, and Thailand. On Thursday, the RCMP arrested one of its own. Cameron Ortiz faces seven charges, including obtaining information to pass on to a foreign entity. He was Director General of the National Intelligence Coordination Center. To talk more about what possible secrets he may have passed on, Christian Luprecht is with the Royal Military College in Queen's University and joins me on the line. Hi, Christian. Good afternoon. How troubling is this? And tell us more about how it is it was uncovered. So on the one hand, it's, of course, deeply troubling because this is a the person who would have been the broker, who would have been at the nexus of criminal intelligence as it pertains to federal and national policing in Canada. So, for instance, he would have had visibility on all espionage investigations. So if you're a foreign uh, adversary country and you want to know which of your spies in Canada, for instance, might be under investigation, or also in allied countries, since we have relatively close relations with a number of allied countries, uh, this would have been a great uh, position to uh, compromise. Uh, so uh, this, it, it's a bit like getting into your Costco warehouse um, and figuring out sort of which, which aisle you just want to go shopping in. On the other hand, of course, it's, it's, I doubt they stumbled across him yesterday. Um, so these investigations usually run for anywhere from 12 to 18 months. They're complex investigations, um, and it appears that there's significant evidence, given uh, how uh, that the how quickly he was charged and uh, uh, and was subsequently held. And so it suggests that, given that they were likely onto him for a year, possibly longer. Uh, that there would have been a mitigation in place in terms of his ability to share absolutely vital uh, intelligence. Uh, and it may also explain the timing of when they did pounce, because it would be unusual for something like this to happen during an election campaign. So there would have been a lot of thinking going on, and you might pounce at this particular moment precisely because he might have been in the process of perhaps uh, selling the farm here, and so you wanted to prevent that from happening. So are you suggesting that just because the investigation was going on that long, it's not as as troubling uh, a breach of national security as it might be at first blush. Um, it it would be. Um, it's now now as I mentioned at the beginning, given the the how how central that position is to criminal intelligence in Canada, um, to have a person like this compromised raises serious questions on all number fronts, including of course the RCMP's HR and promotion system of how a person like that can ever end up in that sort of critical position. At the same time, by virtue of the fact that he would have been under surveillance and then likely subsequently under investigation 
for many months. Um, it would mean that, and you would want to keep someone like this under surveillance investigation precisely because you want to know who are all the people with whom he's having contact. Are there other people elsewhere in Canada or in allied countries who've been compromised? What information is he giving to what people abroad? So you can also learn a lot from these types of investigations, um, and you need to interfere the moment when somebody's giving away something that inherently is absolutely critical and vital. So I think he was on the cusp of doing something that would have seriously compromised Canada's integrity and Canadian intelligence and perhaps allied intelligence. And that's why this happened during an election campaign. It is going to be fascinating as we learn more details, especially as we, especially as we move towards a potential trial. Christian Luprecht is a Royal Military College in Queen's University and Monk Senior Fellow at the McDonnell Laurier Institute and join me on the line. Thanks so much for being on the program. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. According to a recent study by Think Tank Canada 2020, the average student spends roughly $29,568 on higher education. And the report found that 70% of all new Canadian jobs will require post-secondary education or skills training. Now, as a parent of kids, if you have kids that are heading towards post-secondary, that makes your heart skip a beat because... 30K is not exactly chump change. Where are you going to get the cash? Where are your kids going to get the cash? And are they prepared to make the move from high school to post-secondary? Is that exactly what they should be doing? And how long will they be living in your house? A four-part series about the transition between high school and the real world has been launched on globalnews.ca. And whether that's college, university, or the workforce, or something completely different, Failure to Launch examines the gaps in Canada's education system. And Megan Colley is the national online journalist who has filed this for globalnews.ca and joins me in studio. Hi, Megan. Hi, how's it going? It's going great. What did you find about kids and how prepared they are to make that move from high school? Yeah, so we interviewed several dozens of kids across the country, and the overwhelming response that was that they do not feel prepared, and in fact, they feel unsure, confused, and scared of what is going to happen next. So I, we were just talking about how, you know, I had grade 13 when I went to high school back in the in 1930s, I believe it was. And uh, that gave a little bit of extra buffer. But now we don't have that. We've got kids going into post-secondary. They're 17 years old sometimes. Yeah. And that age alone, I mean, what do you know about yourself when you're 17? I sure as heck didn't know that I was going to be a journalist. Uh, I knew, you know, basic likes and interests. But... It's a huge step to ask students to not only decide where they want to go to school next year, but really to to make a decision that could impact their lives for years down the road. So when we talk about failure to launch, for parents that often, you know, that, that indicates somebody that just doesn't have an ability to adult, that just doesn't adult. And what did you find about that? It's not an affair, a fair assumption. I think kids who are prepared to, quote-unquote, adult can still fail to launch out of high school for a number of reasons. I spoke to one expert uh, here in Toronto, Erin uh, O'Rourke. She's a registered psychotherapist, and um, she says that she's actually worried about the development of teen brains at this part of their in their lives. Their brain isn't even fully developed, especially not the part of the brain that is responsible for decision-making. So to ask these students to make a decision that is that will 
you know, have ripple effects. Um, it's, it's a big ask. And, uh, for a lot of students, even ones who, you know, are smart and get good grades and have all the volunteering and everything, even those kids might not be fully prepared for, for making that decision. What kind of solutions are we seeing? Yeah, so it's interesting, you know, um, here in Ontario, we have the new financial literacy uh, course that they announced earlier this year. And I asked one of my experts if they thought that this was a step in the right direction. Um, And, you know, experts do think it is, but I think the overwhelming response was that that's not the silver bullet. What we need to focus on are things like social emotional skills. That would be things like sharing, um, problem solving, you know, all of these things that you would think of teaching a kindergartner. These are really skills that we need to carry through into high school and focus on teaching them in an explicit way to students so that when they get to post-secondary and to the workforce, they are resilient, they're prepared for rapid change, and they know who they are. Isn't that funny? Because we seem to have this perspective, especially in this province, that we need to get back to memorization, get the multiplication time table, the table, all, all of that. And, and what you're talking about is kind of a, a soft skill, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Although most experts hate the distinction between soft skills and hard skills, because historically it's been seen that those hard skills are really, really crucial to, you know, living out in the world day to day. Things like being able to calculate your tax on a bill when it comes at a restaurant or calculate a tip. Um, But what experts are saying are really, you know, we actually need to prepare students for the real world, quote unquote, and that is something that's changing all the time. It's harsh. Nobody is there to hold your hand. And we need to prepare them with these personality traits, these characteristics that really only come from, you know, being taught explicitly. Here's how you would problem solve in the real world, for example. It's a fascinating series and an interesting look, and it is available right now on globalnews.ca. Tell me about the upcoming installments. So on Tuesday of next week, we're going to take a closer look at school counselors and the role that they play in this transition and really the the lack of resources and the lack of bandwidth that they have to dedicate to that transition. Um, In further stories, we're going to take a look at the stigma around going to college or university and why that may not be, you know, super accurate anymore. And in the fourth installment, we're going to take a look at mental health on on post-secondary campuses and the schools across Canada that are doing it right. So fascinating. All those topics are so interesting and so timely. I hope to have you back to talk about it again, Mo. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you, Megan Colley, a Global News National Online Journalist, and you can read her work on globalnews.ca right now. Thanks again. From the world of entertainment, Saturday Night Live on Monday announced it is no longer going to bring Shane Gillis aboard as a new cast member for the 45th season. That's after videos popped up of him making overtly racist jokes. And here's what SNL said. After talking with Shane Gillis, we have decided that he will not be joining SNL. We want SNL to have a variety of voices and points of view within the show. We hired Shane on that strength and his talent as a comedian. uh, And that was the statement from SNL. But in response, this is what Shane Gillis had to say, and I kind of love this burn. Quote, I'm a comedian who was funny enough to get SNL. That cannot be taken away. I was always a mad TV guy anyway. Bit of a burn there. Move aside, friends in the office. Did you hear this? Netflix now has a new gem. Are you already sad about the fact that the office is going? I know my family is. We watch it obsessively. But now it has been announced that in 2021... All 180 episodes of Seinfeld will come on to Netflix. 
This is as this battle between other over-the-top streaming services begins to up. And it raises the question once again, what was the best sitcom of the 1990s? Was it Seinfeld or was it Friends? And if you say Friends, we cannot be friends. I am sorry. Drake has been granted permission to have fences twice as high as otherwise permitted on the grounds of his still under construction on the bridle path. Have you driven past this thing? I, my commute actually takes me up there because the, the global studios are not far from there. And plus, I like to creep on Drake. That's just what I do. And now, the city bylaw dictate that no residential fence can exceed two meters. But on Monday, the North York Community Council signed off on an exemption that will allow Drake to have fences of up to 4.4 meters on his property. We're going to need some pretty big rings and some pretty big fences, you know what I mean? In arguing for the change, a representative for Drake said that people are attempting to get into the property on a daily and nightly basis due to Drake's high profile. I'm sorry, I won't do it again. We have a couple of other stories. I like this one from Miami. On Miami Swingers Club, must pay 32 models a combined $900,000. Why? Used their images without permission. Miami Velvet caters to couples who share partners and have group sex. And the women filed suit in 2015 after advertisements featured their photos appearing alongside explicit images on Miami Velvet's website, leading people to believe that the models endorsed the club. The models do not endorse the club, and they are certainly not inside the club. Tell you that much. I have two animal stories to finish our program. One sad, one happier. From Bangkok, zoo staff in northern Thailand have now donned black and white clothing and observing a minute of silence to mourn the sudden death of a popular giant panda. Chuang Chuang collapsed Monday in his enclosure after standing up following a meal of bamboo leaves. Do not stand up quickly after dinner. That's the advice there. And from Montana, our final story this hour, wildlife officials are urging residents to pick the low-hanging fruit from their backyard trees to avoid attracting hungry bears. Bears eat ravenously to prepare for hibernation just as fruit begins to ripen. So wildlife officials say picking the low-hanging fruit can avoid bear-human encounters Now in Flathead Valley, Montana, there's a program of volunteers who will come around and pick your low-hanging fruit.